0: I feel stronger holding that little one up. I invite you to pull out your sermon notes if you'd like to do so. You can also turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. As we continue through the story of David this morning. In chapter 10, we're reminded that David sent Joab in the army. And then eventually joined them. In chapter 11, once again, David sent a lot of people. He, he sent his armies and he sent messengers and he sent for and he sent and sent and sent. But David was not where he was supposed to be. And as David does this, what we realize is that we have all done similar things at one point or another in our life. We made a conscious choice to put God on a shelf for a while. And appease our own desires above all else. Because it's clear that in that moment, David at least, and like I said, us, what he wanted, he felt was more important than what God had called him to do and so we're reminded that in that moment with Bathsheba, it came, it wasn't just something all of a sudden. No, it came after a progression of choosing to do what he wanted to do versus what God had called him to do. And we're reminded in the last verse of chapter 11 that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. It grieved him. It it made him sick. He was upset in his stomach so much with it. Because we're reminded that God doesn't dismiss sin. God doesn't just set aside and say, well, you know, he meant better, but... God's justice isn't set aside because... Sin always demands a payment. And even in the midst of our sin, though, we need to remember that God doesn't abandon us. God doesn't write us off. But neither does He force Himself into the life of someone that doesn't want Him. And one thing that we can say as we enter into chapter 12 is that as Nathan enters into the context of this story, we can see it as proof that God hadn't abandoned David, that God sent Nathan. Remember, David up to this point has been sending and sending and sending, and now God is the one doing the sending but as Nathan enters in, we should also point out, it, doesn't say, it doesn't, doesn't say he walks into the room and says, hey, King, i got a message from God for you. No, it says that he entered in with a story. And it's not presented as a parable or a story with a punchline. It's presented as, hey, King, here's a story of something that's going on in You are to administer justice. And so it goes like this. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children, and it shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And it says in verse 5 that David burned with anger against the man. Now, David here is pronouncing this severe punishment and judgment on a man who stole the lamb. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die, David says. And David's response here is significant because as the king he is responsible for administering justice and ensuring that justice is carried out in society but the death penalty is far excessive according to the guidelines that god has already given in exodus 22 it it, it tells what's supposed to happen here but then david kind of also gives another punishment so he says you this man should surely die, but also that the lamb should be restored four times. And it's only after this bold pronouncement of judgment that that David has now laid out that Nathan looks to him and says, you are the man. You kind of get the sense of this mic drop. And... David's face probably dropping at the jaw. And David is caught. He does, you know, he, he, he's, he's figuring out what to do next, but we've we got to remember that up to this point, and, and it's not just been a short time, it's probably anywhere from 7 to 12 months later. I mean, she's gone from just knowing she's pregnant to the quick fix of taking care of, and I say fix, of taking care of Uriah, and now she has had the child who we know of no name. And he thinks he's kind of covered up this adultery and murder, and maybe he's even tried to f about it in his own, his own way, in his own heart, but there's some nagging guilt going on. And it doesn't take Nathan giving this message for David to recognize that he is being eaten alive from the inside out. Rather, it took Nathan's message for him to take the required action to reverse the process. And nobody could do this for David. It had to be from his own heart and his own mind. He had to come to a reckoning. So with David kind of in a shock of this pronouncement, Nathan continues. David hasn't responded yet. And the first thing he does is he reminds David who God is. It was God who put David where he is now. It was God's gracious actions toward David that had given him Saul's house and wives and He had put him in leadership over the houses of Israel and Judah. And yet, David wanted more. This divine declaration is a, it's a reminder that, that God is highlighting one of David's sins that we often don't think about. The sin of coveting. It's there. It's one of the top ten of laws of God. I mean, David had everything a man could ever need or want. And it says Scripture that if God if, if he would wanted more and asked, that God would have blessed him with more. And yet, it wasn't enough because coveting says more. Give me more. I want more. And when we covet someone else's job or spouse or income or house or car, we're basically saying to God, you're not fair, God. You haven't been fair. I got short-changed. You know, short I deserved a nicer car. I des- deserved more income. I deserved a bigger house. You owe me, God. And while we may not say those things vocally, we may not say them out loud for, for everybody in the world to hear, In our heart, that's what we are saying with this coveting heart. These are the kind of thoughts we have. And David at this point is not content with what God has given him. And David, and really all of us, should have remembered that God had given him not only everything that he needed, but God had given him far more than he really deserved, and so it comes down to this fact that once he was king, David in reality has started to despise God. Now we need to remember what despising means. To despise something means that you take something of great value and you treat it worthless. We had that happen this this past week in our in our own culture. People remember the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl is like a lifetime dream for anybody that's played football from Pee Wee on. They always dream of winning the Super Bowl. Well, what's the reward of winning the Super Bowl? Not just a title, it's getting to hold the Lamberti Trophy. Well, what do they do this this week? They're celebrating out on a, out on the water to 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 keep the people down and what are the players doing? They're tossing the Lombardi trophy back and forth across boats. Their minds. And they're disrespecting this trophy that many people have dreamed, well, we've won it, no big deal. And the people that are really tossing it, it multiple times, so it ain't no big deal. That's what David has done with God. He says, I've got everything. I'm a a self-made man. I've got my castle. I've got my, my people. I've got my wives. I've got everything. I've got the victories. I've got the pronouncements. Everybody looks to me. And David wanted more. God's word at this point had no real value for David. And the reason I can say that is because of the way David was acting. It's to say thing, it's one thing, to, to live it is another. And we're all guilty of this because we de- at times despise God when we choose our way rather than His way. We basically tell God, you know, I can do better on my own. And so David chose his way and broke at least three of the Ten Commandments. He coveted. He committed adultery. And he murdered. So in verses 11-12, through God gives David the consequences of his choice because he had despised the Lord's ways. As a result, his life will now always be marked by the sword. David's family would be cut and devastated in many ways over many years. In fact, incest, murder, and insurrection would plague the house of David. And so there it is. David now has some choices to make. He's been called to account not by, just by Nathan, but by God. And God put him there. He has blessed him. And now he's pointing out how, God, how David has chosen to despise these blessings through his actions. It's the same choice that we all have as we're confronted with our sin. But, but grace, God's grace is openly and freely offered. And the thing is, we have to each choose to accept it. So in verses 13 and 14, David doesn't respond by getting defensive. He doesn't try to uh, excuse his actions. He doesn't have Nathan executed to continue the hiding process. Instead, he confesses. He declares, I have sinned, Against the Lord. Now up to this point, David has lived with this internal shame, guilt, and heavy conscience. And even though outwardly it seemed that he had gotten away with it. And he's continuing on with how he's lived. And yet Psalm 32 gives us a view as it was written in the midst of this time frame that we see what David's heart is really saying. He declares, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away your hand was heavy up upon me my strength was sapped david had to acknowledge what he had done he couldn't just write off anymore he had to take personal responsibility for his actions and until so nothing would change in his life it's not that he had to draw a crowd and confess to them because we don't have to go on Oprah to, to pour, and pour out our soul to everybody for, for our confession to count. But the reality is we must confess. And just as important, we must repent. While con- is this acknowledging of our wrongdoing. It's saying, okay, I screwed up. It's when we repent that we essentially slam on the brake, crank the steering wheel, and we make a U-turn with our life. You see, we're, we're good at the confession part when we get caught. I messed up. We are horrible with the repentant part. That we think, well, I said I'm sorry. That's good enough. Confession and repentance must go together if we're going to restore a relationship with God. Understand that, that in David's part here, the law provides no animal sacrifice for murder or There's no ritual that's going to solve things for David. In fact, the judgment's very clear that death is the penalty for both of those things. But nobody's going to kill the king. Nobody's going to render that judgment. So what we find is that God's Initiative of grace is the only thing that can provide forgiveness. It was always that. Because the reality is that, that God's grace is what saves us. True obedience is born of trust not legalistic and mechanical observance of rules. David, as he confesses, is exercising not only his belief in God, but more importantly, his trust that he knew God's grace is sufficient. That through His grace, has made a way for not just David, but you and me to be from the sin that has entangled us. We don't have to be slaves to the sin in our lives anymore. We can be restored into full fellowship with God, but that happens only as I put my trust in God and as I live in response to the grace that God has given me and I have received. Verse 15 in all this, we what we find is that because David has confessed, it doesn't mean that everything is going to be restored and, and God's just going to say, you know, you may ret- return to your life unscathed. There are still consequences in this life for David's sin. And so Nathan informs David that God has removed David's sin and that he's not going to die as a punishment. But and there's always a but. But because he wasn't the example that he was supposed to be because he allowed other people now to despise the Lord as they watched what David well David did it. As a result, his son that was just born will die. Verse 15 says that Nathan goes home. David's son becomes sick. And in verse 16, it doesn't take much if you're reading it to sense the grief that is now consuming David. David knows what the outcome's going to be but yet he's he's pleading, he's desperate, he's fasting, he's he's on his knees before God saying, please don't take my son's life. He's he's desperate, but on the seventh day, the child dies. And the, the servants that have been watching David go through this don't quite know what to do. They're afraid to tell David the news of his son's death because they're frankly afraid David's going to do harm to himself. He's, he's out of his mind with grief because he knows that his, son, his sin, his choices, have resulted in this. But he, he senses something's going on and he asks and sure enough, his son has passed. And, it, and it, in a weird twist It says that he got up, cleaned himself up, and goes to meeting and begins to worship God. And the servants are like, what in the world? What's going on? And he's like, I can't change what's happened. All I can change is how I move forward. And as I said last week, this kind of gets bookmarked in the middle of everything. So for now, from, from up to this point, David has been home and now Joab is winning the battle on this, this long-held siege that has gone on for almost a, or about a year at this point. And, and all of a sudden, Joab's about to win. He sends a messenger for, for David and says, if you don't come out and help in this battle as we win it understand that I'm going to take the credit for myself. And David goes. And he's been with Bathsheba because he, it says that he moves from the death of his son to the birth of the next, and they name him Solomon. So what does this story really have to do for us? Most of us don't have people, I will admit, like Nathan in our culture that are going to walk up and start telling us a story that are going to help us recognize the center of our life. I'm not saying we don't need that. Actually, every single person here needs at least someone that's going to point out when they have deviated from what God has called them to do. last week we were dealing with the fact that we often sin and we'll just call it personal and we have this expectation that we can really kind of do you know whatever we want that it's it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission and so we write it off as personal and as long as we watch out for the consequences or we hide it well enough that we, that's kind of the way we live. That God has called us, though, to something more. That we wouldn't despise Him in how we live. And the reality is that there are consequences for our sin. Both spiritually as it breaks relationship with God, but also that rarely does it ever stay just personal. Someone is always affected by our sin. It always affects the relationship with others and with God. But the very real reality that we often forget is that we don't have to sin. We don't have to break relationship with God. We've been living into a lie that says, well, we're human and we're weak and we don't have a choice in the matter. But our choices as we live out this life daily coming before God is answering to this one very real question. Do we believe God is who we say He is? Do we believe God is who we say He is? Do you believe that God is a holy God that expects more from you than just an existence on this planet? If no and we realize that there are people that will say no, then there's not a whole lot more we can say to them. But if we say yes, then we need to address the very sins of our lives and stop writing them off as just personal. That if we say yes, then we need to begin a process of confessing our sins to God and then begin the repentance process that as we live into a life that's set apart and restored, that we choose to live differently. That as we grow, that we choose continually to put God's priorities in front of our own that we do not despise the Word of God. That we don't take the Word of God and basically set it on the floor and say, I'll pick it up when it's more convenient, God. That I'll just set it aside and have my own little fun and I'll just come back and pick it up and ask for forgiveness later. But as we choose to live differently. And we live into God's power through the Holy Spirit. And we often forget a little bit of that last part. That as we live into the Holy Spirit, we remember that God never intended for this to be an issue. He never meant for his love to be sensed that it failed us he never intended for us to break covenant relationship with him he created us in relationship he created us to be understanding of that he would do everything for us until we choose to put ourselves in his place His desire would be that we would appreciate and live into His love so much that we would never, ever think of doing something that would break relationship with Him. And yet we choose to do it all the time. We think, oh, it's just a little sin. I'm not murdering anybody. And God says, I've called you to more." I've called you unto myself. And I love you so much that I'm going to take care of all this sacrifice stuff and I'm going to solve the whole equation and I'm going to send my son to die on a cross for you. Is that enough? And while on Easter we'll celebrate, every other day we tend to despise God's sacrifice. God is calling us to confess our sins. To get right with Him and to to live and lead a life of repentant sacrifice and saying, God, You are God and I am not. David's going to have a messed up life from here on out. Because of the choices he made leading up to that. And yet, there's a transformative moment that happens that in the midst of all of this, David starts worshiping. He starts getting his life right. And he starts... Singing a song. And in Psalm 51, it's written at this key point in his life. And it says this, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to the great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. That's confession. But it doesn't just stop there. Verses 10 through 13, we see more of an understanding of what a repentant heart declares. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from Your presence or take Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of Your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors Your way and sinners will turn back to You that as we confess and as we repent and we lean into God's ways, our lives would then become an example to those that have lost their way. Now to begin that process, we need to confess our sins. We don't need to just write them off, but we need to confess and repent where are you standing before a holy God? Are we just writing it off as, well, it's just a little thing. Or are we standing before a holy God and we recognize there is sin in our life that needs to be dealt with here and now? I'm not going to beleaguer the point. I'm going to ask Lenny, though, if he'd come up. Now is the time, this is the place that we as a church, as individuals and collectively begin to live differently. And it begins with giving God our lives. Maybe you've done it in the past and you thought that just covered it. God is calling us to something more. Maybe you haven't ever put your full trust in God. Not just for the past things that you've done, but more importantly for the future as you plan to live. Do you trust God to be who you say He is? And so as Lenny plays, I'm just going to put this out there. you'd like to come to the altar... If you you want to just do it from your seat, it's, it's the same, but maybe it's time for us to confess and repent. And none of us are set apart from this. God calls us to be holy as He is holy. So we'll take a few minutes. If you'd like to come, please come. Heavenly Father, we come to You today. And we recognize the fact that we are not God. You are. That we stand before You as Your creation. That You are a holy God and You've called us to something more than just mere existence. God, Collectively, we say we're sorry. We confess our sins to You, Lord. For we have not lived according to Your standards in every way. That we have not been a set-apart people that You have called us to be. That we have often... despised your word in different ways. And God, we take this confession and we put it before you, but we also repent. That we realize we are called to live differently. That in thankfulness for your grace, that is more than sufficient. That through your love that we would live differently. That we would Accept the understanding of the Holy Spirit's power in our life to be freed from the sin that has so easily entangled us. And that we would run the race that you have called us today with perseverance. Oh God, hear our hearts. Create me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast us from Your presence or take Your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of Your salvation. Grant each of us a willing spirit and sustain us. And help us to be the example that You've called us to be. So that others would come into understanding of your calling for their life. That we would all turn back to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Go in peace. God blessings upon you.